This morning, if you have your Bible, please turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes. Book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we've got Bibles provided at the middle of each aisle. They're uh, under the chairs. At the middle of each aisle, just flag somebody down who's sitting at the end. They'd be happy to pass one to you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love for this copy to be yours. We love it when our Bibles start disappearing. We pray that they will, uh, because we love the idea of more and more people having their own copy to turn to and read at their own, uh, at, at their own leisure uh, during the week. And, and if you don't own a copy, that one's yours. We'd love for you to take it. If you're not familiar with how the Bible's laid out, Ecclesiastes is, is just to the left of the middle. All right, So flip to the middle of the Bible, and then flip over to the left slowly, and you should see it, depending on how much... Other stuff is wedged in on either side of, of the biblical material. Who knows? Uh, you know, it's a, more, a more fail-safe option for finding Ecclesiastes would just be to turn to the table of contents and find the page number and then flip over there. We're in Ecclesiastes because this year as a church we're studying wisdom. Wisdom is one of the Bible's favorite subjects. Wisdom is about what it looks like to live life well. Wisdom is different from laws. Laws are, are things that God calls us to. Very specific commands that he gives us for reflecting something of his beauty and holiness in the world. Wisdom is what you need when you don't have a law, when you don't have a situation scripted for you, when what you need is an instinct, a skill for living well in the world as it is. The Bible talks about this sort of wisdom all the time. Like lots of places scattered throughout the Bible, but especially, especially, the Bible addresses wisdom in a set of books that are known as the wisdom literature. And we began our study in Proverbs. Proverbs describes the order that's there in the universe. That if you look for it, you can see it. And if you line your life up with the order that's described in Proverbs, things are going to go well with you. This is your path to the good life. That's the, the model that Proverbs holds out. And generally, it's true. But there are other parts of the Bible's take on wisdom. Other books in the wisdom literature that throw up their hands and say, wait, hold on. Hold on, not so fast. Ecclesiastes is one of these. So Ecclesiastes looks at the wisdom of Proverbs, at this order that's described in Proverbs for what makes for a good life, and says, what good is a good life? What good is a skill for living well if you're just going to die in the end anyway? What good is skill at driving, for example, if your careful attention to the road is aiming you straight for a dead-end plunge over a cliff. Who cares if you live well along the way, in the breath that is this life, if you're just going to plummet to your death at the end? That's Ecclesiastes' driving question. The book is filled with examples of things that the author tried out in life, looking for meaning. He's a guy who was, describes himself as wiser than anyone who would ever come before him. And he paid attention to life, just like Proverbs calls us to. He sought after wisdom. But the more wisdom he got, the more depressed he became, the more sorrow and vexation he lived with. Because the more he paid attention, the more he realized that nothing he was trying could give meaning to a life that ends in death. What we've been doing in our study of Ecclesiastes is trying to pull out the themes that he he went for in his life. What he tried out that ended up meaningless for him. Last week we talked about the meaningless of accomplishment, of work, of making a name for yourself as someone who is skilled at something. 
This week, we go to his next major theme. It's the theme of pleasure. Ecclesiastes has been called by, uh, by some the most contemporary of the Bible's books because the experience of the guy who's writing it sounds like our experience. And I don't think that's any more true of any other section or theme in Ecclesiastes than it is of this theme of pleasure. Because this guy had opportunity to try it all. He did try it all. And nothing quenched his thirst. He lived with the dissatisfaction we live with. And in his cautionary tale this morning, we want to have our eyes open to what isn't going to deliver so that we can see more clearly and live more fully for what will deliver. That's where we're headed this morning. I want to just walk you through what he says. So three steps we're going to take together this morning. We're going to begin with his experiment, the hopeful experiment that he sets out for himself in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. Then we're going to try to face up to his awful conclusion. His hopeful experiment ends with an awful conclusion that we want to, we want to absorb We want to take this blow for what it is and not shield ourselves from it so that then we're prepared to, step three, connect with the joyful alternative that's possible to us through Christ. There's our steps. I want to begin by reading from Ecclesiastes chapter two. I'm going to ask you now to please stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. These verses describe the preacher, teacher's life of self-indulgence. And where he ended up. This is the word of the Lord. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart to know how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to start with the hopeful experiment 
our author set out a test for himself. Can lots of pleasure make a short life meaningful? Here's the context. We've already looked at, the, at most of chapter 1 uh, in, in the past couple of weeks together. Started out, he tried building things that would last, that would make a name for himself, that would, that would really make his mark on the world. And he discovered through trying to build, through trying to do good things with his life, that there's nothing new to be done, and no one will remember anything anyway. He throws up his hands. It's pointless. Vanity. Then he tries wisdom. He tries knowledge. He tries to become an expert on life. Knowledge only added sorrow, only added stress. That was the way chapter 1 ended. So now in chapter 2, he decides to try something else. He asks of his heart, Come now, I'll test you with pleasure. In his wisdom, he's already accepted that life doesn't last, that death steals everything away. He's already accepted that. That's chapter 1. So now he's asking, as verse 3 puts it, what's good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life? If it isn't going to last, then what should we do with our time while we've got it? There's his question. His experiment is, let's just enjoy ourselves. Let's just live and let live for tomorrow we die. Let's see what happens if that's the life that we live. If life is short, you may as well do what feels good. Maybe another way to put what he's saying is that it, he's making a bet. He's hoping that he'll be happier if he could just do anything and everything he wants to do. So let's track with his examples. He lived a charmed life, especially in his time. And he was like the upper 1% of the upper 1% of his time. He had access to anything anyone anywhere had access to in his time. And he never said no. So let's track with him. I think it may surprise you how familiar his self-indulgence will sound. Let's look at verse 2. Here's where he starts. I'll try laughter. Let's try comedy. Who hasn't used comedy as an escape from the world as it is? And to some extent, that can be fine. It is, it is a good idea not to take everything so seriously, not to take yourself so seriously that you can't laugh at yourself a little bit. Comedy is a form of escape, partly because it's a way to pretend that you're not part of the world you're mocking, that you get to stand back a little bit and just see it for what it is, to see through things, to get it. We say that to, to appreciate a joke is to get it. To be able to make a joke about the world is to get something that maybe others aren't seeing, to be able to see through it. He's looking for a little detachment, and for a while it's enjoyable, but he can't detach himself from the reality of his decaying body, from the fact that his laughter won't protect him from the grave. He tries laughter, and it doesn't do the job. His detachment from the world he thought he saw clearly was an illusion. He tried wine. It's a drink that symbolizes leisure. It's what you do when you have plenty of disposable food and income. It's a drink of luxury. It's a step beyond the bread and water that you need to survive. So he tries to 
to sort of soothe his ache with the good things in life. He can focus on the quality of what he's taking into his body, not just whether he'll have something to eat or drink. He tries it, but it leads him nowhere. The effect of the wine on his mind wears off by morning, and he wakes up facing the same world that he tried to forget about. And he tries buildings. Verse 4, I made great works, built houses, planted vineyards and parks and gardens all around them. When I read those verses, I think about Versailles. We took a trip to Paris a few years ago, and it's this amazing palace for hundreds of years' worth of French royalty. And it isn't just a palace. It's as far as the eye can see in every direction. Carefully manicured lawns and gardens and fountains and lakes, flowers and trees, all of it. Every single one of them intentionally placed where they were. And there's great beauty in that. There's something really fun and rewarding about planting something and having it grow. Oh, it works. And when you don't have any res- when you're not lacking any resource, when you have all the money that you need to do it the way you want to do it, and when you have good taste to go with all that money, and you actually have a sense of what things should look like, of what beauty could be if you cultivated it, did you have a, an opportunity for something that is incredibly rewarding? And he gave himself fully to that. He made his environment what he wanted it to be. And he enjoyed it. But none of it's still there today. Whoever this was, wherever he did it, it's gone. He had slaves to do his work for him. Verse 7. He could afford to have people do the things he didn't want to do so that he could focus only on the things that he did want to do. A lot of us feel like we would have more joy, more happiness in our life if there were certain things that we're responsible for that we could offload onto someone else. Every single one of us feels that way about some of the things we have to do in our life. This guy had the resources to offload what he didn't want to do. He had money and possessions that outstripped anybody before him. Silver and gold taken from taxes, treasure from kings. Other kings were coming to him paying tribute. He had flocks and herds. More than any who had ever come before him in Jerusalem. And he used his wealth to buy himself pleasure. He entertained himself. Paid for singers to come and serenade him. And he had unlimited, no strings attached, sex. If there's something to be enjoyed, this guy enjoyed it. I think one way to understand his lifestyle is as a lifestyle in which you get to be God under the sun. There's no God in this description of what he did. 
There's a lot of first person. There's a lot of I, 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 me, myself. One commentator noted, it's like he rebuilt the Garden of Eden, a world that was perfect and had everything in it that he could enjoy. Only in this Garden of Eden, there are no rules. In this Garden of Eden, the only thing that matters is whether you want it or not. He never said no. No one ever told him no. And no circumstance ever got in his way. Now be honest. Don't you think you'd be happier if that were true of your life? If you never had to say no, if no one else ever told you no, and if no circumstance ever got in your way, don't you think you'd be happier? Wouldn't you like to give his experiment a try for yourself? The point of this text is to try to impress you with everything that he was able to enjoy. The point was to make a big spectacle for you. Not a normal life. This guy got to try it all in a way that no one else before him got to. But in a way, in a way, if we're honest about this passage, all the things that he lists off that made him unusual and what he could enjoy, all the things that made him the upper 1% of the upper 1% of the ancient world, All of them are enjoyable to some extent by pretty much everybody in the middle class in the Western world. Think about it. One one observer that I read this week said that we can now go and buy wine at a gas station that's better than what most French kings got to enjoy before the last couple hundred years. We can enjoy exotic food from all over the world at reasonable prices. Just go to Trader Joe's and see what you can find. Stuff that most people in the history of the world died without ever tasting. We can go this afternoon on a whim. We enjoy great buildings. Home ownership in America is at an incredible rate historically. Now, we may not all have the freedom to build our own parks, but there's a lot you can do in your yard. And even if you don't have a yard, there are incredible parks available to you, paid for in many cases by tax dollars, that you can take your choice of this afternoon. You can go to Radnor Lake. You can go to Percy Warner, Edwin Warner Park. Last year, we were members at Cheekwood. So Cheekwood is basically an environment just like the one this king has described. Great house. Grounds that stretch out for acre after acre that are perfectly manicured, all of it intentionally, all of it with beautiful things to see. Now, I might not have the the resources to own something like that, but I get to enjoy it. Somebody else has got the headache of taking care of it. We all have, in 
one way or another, other people to do some of the things that we don't want to do. We don't have to provide for our own medical care, not directly. Most of us aren't our own lawyers when we need one. Most of us don't prepare our own taxes. A lot of times we don't even prepare our own food. And that's all just stuff that's in this passage. We actually enjoy things that he never even could have imagined. He couldn't have imagined air conditioning on a day when it's 95 degrees outside. He couldn't have imagined international travel. I'm not a rich person by by our Western standards. I've traveled all over the world. He couldn't have even imagined that. He couldn't have imagined a medical care that can take away even even non-life-threatening discomfort. He couldn't have imagined... Well, he he never went to a place like Disney World or Las Vegas or the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He never watched a football game. The point, the reason I'm spending so much time on this, friends, you probably think that if, if you had his opportunities, your life would be happier. You probably think, I'd like to give his experiment a try. My point is, you probably are, whether you realize it or not. Your life is his experiment. How does it feel to you? His conclusion is an awful one. It's the second step through this passage. We've got to let it land on us, especially because we're living his experiment. I want you to look at his awful conclusion in verses 10 and 11. In the ancient Near East, where this document was written, it was really common for great kings to have lists like this one. Did you notice that the whole thing we just read, the first eight verses, was just a list of the things he accomplished or the the, the resources he had at his disposal? It's a celebration of his unusual life. So archaeologists have dug up texts with lots of examples like this for great kings around Israel around the same time. Similar lists. Kings of Assyria, Sargon, and Sennacherib. You can probably Google these and you'll see a list that has a lot of the same items in it. The things they built, the things they enjoyed, the money that they amassed for themselves. But in each case, their lists are there to celebrate the king. To put, them, put him on a pedestal. To, to try to remind all who come after him of how great he was. The list of our author makes a, an almost diametrically opposite point. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, he's told us. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it. I considered what my life amounted to 
if I never said no, if no one ever told me no, and if nothing ever got in my way. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He had it all. And he realized that he had nothing. Why? I don't want you to misunderstand the point. He is not claiming here that there's no fun to be had in life. He isn't claiming that he didn't really enjoy all the experiences that he had. In fact, he's saying just the opposite. Verse 10 said that he didn't keep his eyes from anything that they desired, and he found pleasure. He really did enjoy the wine and the laughter, the the buildings, the entertainment, the sex. He enjoyed all of it while it lasted. But that's the key. While it lasted. What he's realized now at the end of his life is that it didn't last. And neither will he. And that because it didn't last, there's nothing gained. There's his, there's his phrase. There's nothing gained under the sun. He's past pretending that all the things he really did enjoy really mean anything at all on their own. He's past pretending that what he enjoyed could quench his underlying thirst, could soothe his underlying ache, could expand on his sense of smallness and insignificance in the breath of his life on a tiny speck within the vastness of the universe. Look back through the passage and notice how often he uses the first person. I said of laughter. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I made myself pools. I bought male and female slaves. I gathered for myself silver and gold. I got singers. I became great. The narcissism in this portrait of a life given to any pleasure that could be got. The narcissism here reveals a man who believes he's too important to die. A man who was the center of his universe. But as he's aged, as his life becomes more memory than prospect. He's realized that he, like it or not, is not the center of the universe, is not too important to die, that the world will keep turning when he's not there on it to indulge himself. He's realized that. He now knows he'll be swallowed by an appetite that is even greater than his own. I wonder if you've come to his conclusion yet. 
Do you still feel like you've got it all? Or at least, at least that you're on the way to having it all? Still enjoying your life to the full? I wonder. If you are, if you haven't experienced the dissatisfaction this man describes, that doesn't mean he's wrong. He enjoyed himself along the way. There was a time in his life, in his younger years, where he thought his life might be meaningful if he just got himself everything he wanted. He was where you may be. And the way this text serves us is to give us a forecast of where we'll be. It gives us an opportunity to get there before we get there. And to realize now, before we've spent ourselves pursuing what won't last, that it's never going to deliver anyway. You can't prove him wrong just because you don't feel yet what he feels. He's urging you to realize that at some point, the illusion will shatter and you'll realize what he did, that nothing ever lasts And because nothing lasts, because even the best of our pleasures in life, even the things we enjoy above all else, because nothing lasts, nothing gains us anything. Everything we love, we also lose. And so in every experience of joy or pleasure is also the agony that comes from missing it. It's one of the great insights of this new Pixar movie we went to see a couple weeks back, Inside Out. It's actually a remarkably insightful movie about how humans work and about what we love and what we want and how we grieve when we don't have it anymore. The heart of this movie is is the idea that we have memories that can change on us. Memories that start out happy can end up sad. And what changes them from being happy memories to sad memories is the growing realization as you age that what you had and loved is now something you've lost. It changes from gain for your life, from meaning added to your life, to an absence in your life. Everything always comes out to zero. And that's not good enough for our author. And it's not good enough for you either. It won't satisfy you. There's no pleasure in life that will ever satisfy you because your heart was built to long for eternity, for something that will last. You long for, whether you realize it or not, a life of joy that won't end, that won't amount to nothing more than a moment and a fading memory. That's what you were built for. That's what you want. That's what you're seeking as you seek pleasure in life. And that's what, considered under the sun, as if God is not, that's what you will never, ever get. That's the awful conclusion that our author comes to. What do we do with it? Thanks be to God, there is a joyful alternative to what our author experienced. 
Maybe you're wondering, reading, reading this, I guess you could call it a critique of pleasure, in one sense. Reading this critique of the pleasures of life, things like wine and exotic food or accomplishment or entertainment or sex. What do, Christian, what, is, what do Christians do with the pleasures of life? Maybe you're reading this and you're a little bit confused or you think you know. Just Christians don't care about the pleasures of life. Maybe you're thinking that because the pleasures of life don't last, we ought to remove ourselves from them and plant ourselves somehow in something that does last. I want to try to bring a little bit of, I want to close with a little bit of clarity in what might be confusing for you. Face with this passage. How do we respond to it well? Whether you're considering Christianity and wondering what Christianity would mean for you, whether you're a Christian and wondering what it looks like for you to indulge or not the pleasures that are available to you. I want to I warn us against two pitfalls. Two pitfalls. The pitfall of idolatry and the pitfall of ingratitude. The pitfall of idolatry and the pitfall of ingratitude. Both bad ways to engage with the pleasures of life. If you recognize that the pleasures of life come as gifts from God. If the pleasures of life come as gifts from God then we'd be wrong to treat them as if they didn't come from Him, as if they were ends in themselves. And we'd be wrong to treat them as if God didn't give them to us, to enjoy. We want to avoid idolatry and ingratitude. Now, most of what we've talked about so far is on this idolatry side, making gods out of the things God has given us. That's what this guy did. He tried to add meaning to his life that can only come from worshiping and serving something bigger than you. Something that is, explains why you're here and what's good in life. He took some things that were pointers, signposts to something else. And he made them into the end in themselves and they couldn't carry the weight. They couldn't carry the weight. The weight that he needed them to carry crushed them and him too. They make awful gods because we want too much from them. And the problem is bigger than that they dissatisfy us. When we turn the things God has given, the good things in life, into things that we seek as if he didn't give them to us, when we treat them like a spoiled rich kid treats his Maserati as if he he just had it coming to him and his parents didn't have anything to do with it, when we treat the good things in life as if God's not behind them, it, isn't just, it doesn't just turn them into things that dissatisfy us. It's also dishonoring to God. It also makes a false claim about who he is and what he cares about. It also says to him that he isn't worth thinking about. That he isn't worth pursuing on his own. It goes to the heart of what the Bible says sin is which is just like in chapter 2 here, a turning inward on ourselves, a seeing of ourselves more clearly than we see the God who made us and calls us to be for Him in life. And the Bible tells us that the impermanence of this life, the fact that nothing lasts and death is at the end, is not the way things were meant to be, but it's a judgment of God on us. 
It is his response to our decision to live as if he's not there. To live as if the pleasures of life were more about us than they were about him. But friends, the remarkable news of the gospel is that that God himself, the God who designed these pleasures for our good, the God who we neglect by pursuing the pleasures as ends of them in, in themselves, the same God we have chosen to treat as if he doesn't exist, this God has entered into the impermanence of our world. He has taken on a killable body like ours. He has lived through want, disappointment, and dissatisfaction. He has ended his life in a death just like ours. And he's done that so that he can satisfy those who are dissatisfied precisely because they've forgotten him. Who does that? And in his resurrection, in the fact that this God who came for us when we had neglected him, lived and died for us, in the fact that he has now risen for us, we have an opportunity not just to be saved from death, but to be turned on to a world of pleasure that is a foretaste of what's to come. In other words, if Jesus is who the Bible says that he is, and if we grab onto him in faith, now all of a sudden, the things that would dissatisfy us if they are all we had to make meaning in a life that ends in death become opportunities to enjoy along the way an appetizer of the feast that he's prepared. A taste of the glories that are to come. All of a sudden, the pleasures in life that we get to enjoy taken off the pedestal on which we had placed them become opportunities for joy that were never available to us if they were all we had. So does Christianity teach you've got to stop enjoying yourself? Absolutely not. If Christ is, then now you actually get to enjoy yourself and to see the pleasures of life for what they are, not for what they aren't. And doesn't this square with what we know about the world? Who cares That the flowers of the field bloom for a time, then wither and fall. Aren't they still beautiful? Don't you still want to savor the joy of looking at them? We know that just because things don't last doesn't mean they aren't beautiful. What do we do with that? Well, if Christ is, and if these impermanent joys are merely pointers to everything he has promised to give us, and we enjoy them while they last. We enjoy them more fully than we could have otherwise. We hold them more loosely than we could have otherwise. We enjoy them while they're here. We let go of them when they're gone. And we say, come Lord Jesus, give us what won't go away. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. I'm going to close with this. His images are so memorable so often. This one comes from the problem of pain. He's talking about what our author talks about in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So in chapter 3, our author puts a point on some of the things he was building to in chapter 2. All of his dissatisfaction with the pleasures of life considered under the sun as if God doesn't exist. He returns, in a way, to those pleasures in chapter 3. And here's what he says. 
This is Ecclesiastes 3. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He made the flowers of spring beautiful in their time, even if they die come summer. But he's put eternity into man's heart. He's made us want more than flowers that die in the summer. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. He's made us want something we can't understand or deliver for ourselves. So, our author says in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. That everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all this toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Our author is charting a middle path for us here. You want eternity. You don't have it yet. But enjoy on your way the good things God has given to you as a gift. To not do that would be ingratitude. Here's, what Lewis, here's the way Lewis puts it in The Problem of Pain. The settled happiness and security which we all desire, something that won't go away, a pleasure that lasts, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment, He has scattered broadcast. We are never safe, but we have plenty of fun. The security we crave. Here's where Lewis helps us understand the perspective of Ecclesiastes. The security or eternity we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and oppose an obstacle to our return to God. But a few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a football match, have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns, hotels, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. What do you do with the pleasures of life? Well, if you don't make a God out of them, but you want to be grateful for them, what you do with the pleasures of life is use them to enjoy the God who endures. You enjoy what he's given you on the way to what he'll give you. And you enjoy it to the full. Father, help us to have this God-honoring joy in the good things of life. And protect our hearts from committing to things that will not deliver. Forgive us for the ways in which we have treated you. As if you had not given us everything good. And help us to love you through the things that we love. In Jesus' name, amen.